2 Corinthians 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in all Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, It is for your consolation and salvation, for the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. And Father, we just humbly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now as we continue in our time of worship by opening the word of God together as a family, we pray, Lord, that you would give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church assembled this day and through this portion of the word of God. So, Lord, we ask, prepare us. We ask that you would speak to us, not with wise or persuasive words of a man, but through that demonstration of your spirit and power, ministering things to our hearts that we need to hear from your voice through the word of God. Speak through what you have spoken already, Lord, in the scripture now. We ask this together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, though I think we would all agree that though suffering is not a pleasant experience, it can actually be a productive experience. It's not a pleasant experience, but suffering and pain can actually be a productive experience. For example, even as in the process of people struggling through exercise routines, you know, think of some of these Olympic athletes and what they subject themselves to in exercise. Oftentimes, subjecting yourself to exercise includes pain and even pushing through pain. But yet the reality is the experience of that pain is also what increases strength. It's what increases health or maintains health. Well, in the same way, passing through difficult times or even painful experiences in various forms of suffering that we go through can actually produce in the same way beneficial things in our lives. It can strengthen our character. It can develop spiritual and moral health in our lives. It can actually have productive and beneficial results through the suffering, even can become a help to other people. And that is what our text is addressing this morning, that suffering, first and foremost, is a part of living out life upon this fallen earth. And suffering is also a part of following Christ. The Bible teaches that very clearly in the New Testament. And suffering, though unpleasant, however, can be productive in what it accomplishes in our lives as God's people. Now, since we're beginning a new book study this morning, if you'll bear with me for a moment or two, just want to set the context a little bit. Again, the backdrop, remember, Paul, as we saw in 1 Corinthians, he had planted the church in Corinth. And it's the one location where he planted a church where Paul actually, this was the second longest spot that he stood in 
pastoring and ministering for a time there, teaching the word of God. 18 months, Paul remained in that location, pastoring the church that he had planted in Corinth. And that was a long time for Paul. Predominantly, Paul's calling was a church planter, and Paul would plant a church. He would teach the word of God. He'd minister there for a while. It seems local leadership would be raised up, and Paul was sort of a missionary as well, would then move to another location and preach the gospel and plant churches. But Paul stood in Corinth for about 18 months. We know the city of Corinth was a very morally corrupt city, and as a result of that, the church in Corinth started to be influenced by the outside world. And it started to cause the Christians within the church to begin to become corrupt in some of their mindset morally, in some of their practices and how they were living out their lives and even spiritual issues within the church. And they had sent some questions to Paul and Paul therefore wrote an instructive as well as corrective letter to the church to address some of these issues. That was first Corinthians. And we looked at that together. Now, This letter that we're looking at now, 2 Corinthians, was written about a year later. That is about a year after they received 1 Corinthians and all Paul wrote in there to instruct and to correct and to address things that they had asked him about. And this letter now comes about a year later. And some, as the result of that corrective letter of 1 Corinthians, some in the church had responded and had responded well. Some had even repented. And changed and sought to do what was right in the sight of the Lord. And yet, as you can imagine, others resisted. And they didn't like what Paul had to say. And because of their pride or their stubborn hearts or their desire to want to continue to live in sinful practices, they actually became angry with Paul. And they became critical of Paul. And they began to do things to try and push back against him. And because Paul was very gracious and humble and was not forceful, In his dealings as a Christian, nor as a leader and a a pastoral figure, Paul wasn't forcing people. He's going to say in this very letter, look, we don't have dominion over your faith. We can't control you. We're not supposed to control you. We're just helpers of your spiritual walks. But because Paul wasn't being forceful and was being gracious and humble, as the result, some in the church at Corinth who had resisted started to disrespect him. They started to challenge his spiritual authority and his calling as an apostle and as a pastor and a church leader and missionary. And Paul now has to find a way to keep helping the church by connecting with their hard hearts in some way. And as the result of that, you notice in this letter, we'll see that this is probably one of Paul's most transparent letters in the entire New Testament. He really bears his heart. He shares his own personal spiritual experiences with them. And he reveals some really deep and personal things about his own spiritual walk, about his ministry experiences, about his convictions and beliefs. And it is a letter that includes a lot of personal testimony. We get to know a lot about Paul as a person. He's very transparent and open about what things he was experiencing in his lives. And it tackles many different spiritual issues. And there are a number of great spiritual principles that we glean from this letter that are of help to all of our spiritual lives. So look with me as Paul opens the letter in verse one again. He begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, he says, and Timothy, our brother. So the letter opens in a traditional way, as often ancient letters would, not just New Testament letters, where the author writing identifies himself at the very beginning 
of the letter or the correspondence. And again, the purpose of this, understand, is when they would use scrolls that were rolled up, and you can imagine if all of what we have in 2 Corinthians, all these chapters were on a scroll, it was a little bit of a lengthy scroll so that you didn't have to practically unroll all the way to the end of the scroll to hear, you know, love John or love Sally. They corresponded in a way where they identified themselves right at the front. In some ways, that was helpful because then if you didn't like it, you didn't even have to open the rest of the scroll. Oh, that's from Paul. Don't open it. Who knows what he's going to say this time? But they would identify themselves on the front end for that reason. And Paul often in his New Testament letters identifies himself with different titles. Sometimes he refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, which speaks of that willing servant who, in a sense, gives up their rights to fulfill their master's business. Other times, Paul identifies himself, as we see here, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And again, as we've said before, that term apostle, the word literally means a sent one. And and it means a sent one in the sense that one who has been sent out with authority from a throne. The idea is someone who's gone out as an, an ambassador with the authority from a country or a throne. They're on a mission for their king And they've gone forth to conduct the affairs and to communicate on behalf of their king's interest. So they are a sent one, one sent out with authority from a throne. And so Paul says here that I'm an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, I have been sent forth with the authority of King Jesus. With the backing of heaven's throne behind what I'm doing, Paul had been sent out by the Lord to conduct the Lord's affairs to speak what Jesus wanted spoken, to do that which Jesus wanted to fulfill his purposes. So the basis of Paul's spiritual authority was not a church or his own self-appointed authority. Paul's saying, no, the basis of the authority I'm operating in, it's divine. It's from heaven itself. It's from the very King Jesus who sent me forth as a church planter, a pastor, a missionary, a spiritual leader, Because notice Paul indicates there in verse 1, look at it, he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by, this is how it happened, by the will of God. That is, it was a divine calling. Paul was just answering really a, a calling and fulfilling obediently something that God had chosen for his life. And this is what Paul's conveying. Yes, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, one sent forth with his authority to do his work, But he's saying, look, this is not something I was rewarded as a result of campaigning for the job among the church. This is not something he said that I came into doing because I was properly credentialed once I got the right training and I had such a great resume, they hired me for the position. Paul's saying, no, the reason why I'm in this capacity is because it was a decision of God. It was by the will of God. God chose this for me. He gave me this spiritual enablement by his grace, and all I am doing is cooperating humbly and in faith with what God has assigned for me to do. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, remember, he said there, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And Paul just accepted, by the grace of God, this is what God has chosen for me. It's his will, and he humbly accepted it and sought to comply in faith. Let me say this morning, even as Paul was an apostle by the will of God, please know the highest calling and the most important calling for every Christian is to simply be what God has called you to be 
by the will of God. Not to say, oh, I hope I can be this, or I hope I can be that, or I hope I can be an apostle or a missionary or pastor, but to accept what has God called me to be by the will of God. Uh, That could be someone who is Joe, the auto mechanic, by the will of God, and truly has been given an aptitude to work with one's hands and to operate an ethical business and to be different and a Christian influence with his customers and how he takes care of people and to use that as an avenue to represent Christ well and to serve the Lord in that way. Someone else may be a a, a musical worship leader by the will of God or a, a children's ministry worker by the will of God. And the highest calling of God is just to discover what God has called you to be by the will of God, to humbly embrace that and in faith to step forward and to be comfortable in that and to operate. That is the highest calling of God, to be what he's called you to be by the will of God. Paul also indicates here in verse one, notice that he was together with Timothy at this time. And then he next going on in verse one begins to address the recipients of the letter. He says, this letter is to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who were in awe Achaia. So this letter was for the local congregation gathering in the city of Corinth. But Paul also tells us here that it was also for all Christians in the entire region of Achaia, an area of Greece, where the city of Corinth and the church of Corinth was located. So notice how Paul refers here in verse 1 to the Christians both individually as well as collectively. You see both here. Individually, Paul refers to Christians individually, verse 1, as all the saints. That's the title he gives to all the individual Christians all throughout the region that he's writing to. And again, the word saints... Hagios or holy ones, that's what that term is in the original language. That's what the word saint technically means. It just means a holy one, and it means a holy one by having been set apart by a position, not by one's holy practice. Now, this is very important because biblically, and I emphasize that word biblically, a saint is not someone who has done good things and has done a lot of religious and benevolent practices, so therefore we should treat them like they're more holy than other people. Biblically, a saint is someone who has believed upon and received the work of what Jesus has done. In his suffering, in his sinless life, his sacrificial and substitutional death on the cross on our behalf and his resurrection and someone who has believed upon what Jesus has done, received the work of Jesus, and as the result of that, has been therefore by God divinely declared holy or righteous positionally because of their faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ. That's biblically what a saying is. It's our position that God has made us righteous or holy through the blood of Christ, and having forgiven our sin, given to us also the righteousness of Jesus. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 of the righteousness, listen, of God. In other words, its origin is from God. It's not a human righteousness. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So the Bible teaches our own righteousness is not good enough to be acceptable to God. You can't be holy enough. I can't be righteous enough 
to have acceptance with God and certainly not to have access into heaven. But the Bible says that as we trust the finished work of Christ, there is a righteousness, not of man, but a righteousness of God. It's the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And God gives that righteousness to you. He gives that righteousness to me. He puts it into our account. He clothes us in the righteousness of God that's, that's heavenly. And that's what makes us acceptable. That's what makes us saints. That's what makes us righteous before the Lord. So when people talk about saints, you go, I'm a saint too. Did you know that? I'm a saint. Saint Anthony. That sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? Is there one of those? I don't know. I'm one of them. But only because of the righteousness of Jesus. So individually, he refers to Christians as saints. And then collectively in verse 1, he talks about Christians as being referred to as the church. That's the collective reference to the church of God, which is there at Corinth. And the word church is that term ecclesia, which means a called out assembly. That is a special group that has been called out of one group to make a distinct and separate group. That's what the word ecclesia means. And the church, the ecclesia, is a supernaturally called out group of people from the world system to become followers and assembly of God. We have been divinely assembled by the grace of God called out of our sinful condition, our lost state from a sinful fallen world system that we once were a part of. And through our experience of salvation with Jesus, we have now become a part of a new assembly, a spiritual assembly, the church that has been assembled together to now be living lives as a part of God's family. That's why he says we are the church of God. It belongs to God. We're the church family. He's the father. Jesus is the big brother. He's the one that brought us into the family. And as a result of that, we're a spiritual assembly serving the purposes of King Jesus together. Now, that reminds us of something important that I believe ties into the verses that are ahead of us, is that as we remember that we are a spiritual assembly who've been called out of one system and we've been put together as an assembly spiritually of God and of God's purposes, that means that we should live our lives here in light of that reality, which means we're called to live differently. And we're called to view everything differently because we see things from that perspective. In other words, we should embrace that we're not just here on this earth as the church, the assembly of God's people called out supernaturally. We're not here as God's people just to only exist on earth. We're not here to just do everything we can to just survive as long as we can on earth and make as much as we can on earth and accumulate as much as we can on earth and enjoy as much as we can on earth. There are actually higher purposes that we're actually called to live for as God's people. He's called us to a higher purpose and we want to keep that in mind even in how we relate to our experiences of everything we go through on this earth. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, walk worthy of the calling that you've received. Walk worthy of that. It's a special calling. Paul's going to say when he gets to chapter 4, our present troubles are small and won't last long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them all and will last forever. He says, don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on what cannot be seen for the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. And Paul's going to say that, that that's the perspective we have to have. Can't look at just how it sees on the, on the material and the temporal. We got we to realize there's something beyond this. We exist in the temporal, 
but we have a completely eternal perspective on our experience even on this earth. Verse 2, Paul gives a typical Pauline greeting, pronouncing a blessing there. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says that from the Father as well as the Son, Paul says, I pray that they may bring grace and favor upon you and just the peace of God into your life. He's wishing them a blessed experience of grace and peace. Now, I have to say, that's quite interesting, particularly for the church of Corinth, that Paul would pronounce such a kind blessing upon them because the church of Corinth was not the kindest in their treatment to Paul. So to me, this is all the more beautiful that Paul gives them the same pronounced blessing as he does all the other churches because the church at Corinth had really given Paul some challenges. I mean, they were kind of like the uh, analogy, if you would, of kind of like the badly behaved kid who gives a really hard time to their parent in raising them. That's kind of like what the church of Corinth was for Paul. But yet Paul, instead of wishing they get a dose of their own medicine, Paul very kindly says, you know what? I want your best. I pray that you'd experience grace and just the peace of God and his favor would be upon you. And that beautifully reflects the heart and desire of Jesus. It even obeys Jesus's teaching because Jesus said, remember in Matthew 5, bless those who curse you. They had cursed Paul in Corinth. Many of them had. You'll see that in this letter. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And here Paul reflects that heart of Jesus. Though they had given him a really hard time, he's being very kind to them still and gracious, because again, in his heart of love, and we'll see him express that in this letter, Paul will say, look, please, I'm opening my heart to you. Open your heart for me. Don't be so hard and resistant, Paul's going to say to them ultimately. He's winning them over, killing them with kindness, we might say. Paul certainly does that in this letter. He goes on, verse 3, to then begin to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So as he opens the letter, he starts out praising God and his wonderful nature. And notice, putting the focus here in these next few verses on how God is a kind and a good and a compassionate father figure in the way that he interacts with people. He repeatedly emphasizes in our verses ahead the imagery of the fatherhood of God and that God is a good, kind, gracious, compassionate father. Let me just say this morning, for some of you may not have had a very good earthly father. There is a wonderful heavenly father who can fill the void and heal the hurts and don't shut your heart off to the fatherhood of God because of what happened with a human father by the same token even if you've had a wonderful father then you should be able to relate all the more God is a perfect father a gracious loving and kind father and and this is how the Holy Spirit directs Paul here to portray God in this kind fatherly figure role not as a a, a cold-hearted ruler or a judge upon a throne. He portrays him as a father figure in these verses. He calls him, first of all, in our verses here, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus being the son of God the Father, living among human humanity, being in a body of flesh, Jesus most often, look at his language in the gospel, is related 
to God as his father. And so often Jesus used that term when he spoke to him or about him. Matthew 7, Jesus says there, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father in heaven. Matthew 26, Jesus says there, as he went a little further, falling onto the ground, praying, talking to God, oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And all throughout, we see Jesus living in a body as a man, picturing God in this loving, relational way, in this intimate connection as a child with a loving and a compassionate and kind father. And then numerous, numerous times in the gospel, Jesus would always encourage his followers to relate to God as their father, which was mind-blowing to a Jew, you have to understand. To address God in such an intimate, compassionate, close way. Again, not relating to God in this cold, disconnected way as a, as a far-off being who's powerful and disconnected. But Jesus, Matthew 7, says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? And Jesus wanted his followers, he wanted you and I to see God in this kind fatherly figure role. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he describes God in a very picturesque way here. Verse 3, look at it. He calls him also the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Again, a father is someone who gives origin or life to something. That's what makes someone a father. And mercy refers to feeling pity and showing restraint or holding back the brunt or the experience of something, the intensity or severity that could have been experienced in a much worse way. Mercy is intervening to provide relief because you're motivated by compassion to shield from some of the brunt of that hard experience. And our Father, in loving compassion for us as people, knowing our frailty, knowing our weakness as human beings, is extremely merciful, the Scripture says, in dealing with us as his children. He is the Father of mercies. He intervenes in our lives so often, and he's prone to show restraint, to hold back the severity of how bad our hard experiences really could be if our Heavenly Father wasn't shielding us some and mingling his mercy into the process in his compassion, holding back the intensity of suffering that it would have been if he didn't lovingly alleviate some of the hardship from us. It could have been way worse, the idea is. Now, look, I don't want to diminish. Indeed, we do suffer through things at times, as I said at the beginning, due to life's painful and hard experiences that we all go through. And there are hard times that we will all go through. But in compassion, the Bible's saying God, as a God of mercy, provides relief from the full severity of how hard it really could be sometimes from the full brunt of the difficulty, the overwhelming struggle, he kindly cuts back some of the experience by his merciful restraint so that we don't become overwhelmed. Our Heavenly Father is not harsh or severe. He doesn't enjoy seeing any one of us suffer or go through hardship. He's always extending mercy to make hard things a little bit more bearable for us. That's the heart of our Father. And he says he's not only the father of mercies, but Paul calls him here also by the Holy Spirit, the God 
of all comfort. That is, God uses all his power and his ability to bring comfort to those who are hurting, to those who are in pain, for whatever reason they're in that pain, whatever kind of comfort we need in any situation. He is the God of all comfort. That is whatever kind of comfort we need. And there are various different ways that we hurt at times. Maybe it's physical pain. Maybe it's suffering in our body. And God is a God of comfort, even in the midst of the physical pain and the suffering that we can go through in our bodies of flesh. He provides his comfort. Maybe we need emotional comfort. Maybe it's for sorrow or some grief. And we need to be comforted emotionally. God is the God of all comfort. Maybe it's heartache over something hurtful that we've experienced in our lives and we need to be comforted because something very hurtful happened to us. Something very painful was done to us. Or there are times when we need God's comfort because of our heartache over our own personal failures. And we may find ourselves grieving and heartbroken over our own errors. Look, this morning, can I ask you, are you hurting today? Is it possible this morning you've experienced something recently or maybe in your past or at some point that has deeply wounded you as a person? Is it possible this morning that you're enduring even right now a painful situation? I want to say to you on the authority of the word of God, God, unlike any human being, is able to comfort you in all of those things. That whatever it is, God is able to bring supernatural comfort to reduce the pain, to bring healing where it's needed, even to remove suffering in his way and time. And he's not only the God of all comfort, whatever kind of comfort, but I think that also reminds us he's the God of all comfort, however much comfort that we need. You know, in some things in life, you you need a little bit of comfort for the minor things, the, the, the scraping of the knee. Then there's other times that you need major, massive amounts of comfort in your life. Those times when we go through very difficult things, maybe a major life tragedy, maybe it's a severe illness that's come into your life or a severe illness that's come into one of your loved one's life. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one in death and a tremendous pain of that. Maybe it's some traumatic experience that you've endured in your life and you need a massive amount of comfort and help and healing look because he is loving and he's god and he's all powerful however much comfort you need it's not like god's going to say i just that's more than i can handle i can tell you this as a human being i can't always properly comfort every human being but i can tell them there is a god of all comfort That whatever kind of comfort you need, God understands that because he's God. And however much comfort you need through the whole process of healing, he's a God who can give you all the comfort you need because he has all the power to provide that comfort. And not only that, God is never negligent or unable to comfort us because verse 4, he goes on to say, he is the God of all comfort who comforts us, notice, in all our tribulation that word tribulation paul uses there is that greek term thalipsis which is a term that spoke of being under a crushing pressure that term was often used 
Philipsis translated tribulation here in various ways. It was used to describe the process of extracting good things from, for example, plants and things of that nature by subjecting them to crushing pressure. For example, like what they would do in the olive press. There was that crushing pressure of the olive press to extract out the precious oil. That word Thalipsis was also used at times to describe severe torture that was people were subjected to, where they would do torturous things and bring crushing pressure upon people's bodies in a way where it was just severe pressure and pain being brought upon them. So it speaks of enduring intense and overwhelming pressure. That's what our word tribulation speaks of there. It speaks of going through something that is a crushing experience. There have been times in your life, maybe where you've gone through something and it literally feels like it's a crushing experience. Something so hard that you know, you may say, I literally feel like I can't even catch my breath, like I can't breathe right now. And just the weight of it, the crushing experience is so hard and it's crushing you with heavy pressure. Look, Jesus said to us, in this world, you will have tribulation, crushing experiences, hard times, difficult things, generally part of life is hard and painful experiences from time to time. And sometimes even those crushing, overwhelming experiences. We also suffer tribulation sometimes just directly related to being a follower of Jesus. Sometimes we go through tribulation just trying to walk faithfully with the Lord and the pushback or the mockery or the mistreatment we get. And there are also times when we suffer painful tribulation, if we were to be honest, due to our own poor and sinful decisions on occasions. And it's our poor choices or our sinful decisions that bring painful problems into our lives. Yet thanks be to God, because he is a father of mercies and a God of all comfort, he says here, who comforts us in all our tribulations. No matter what the cause for it was, no matter what the reason we're suffering, if we're simply going through a hard time and a painful experience, and we may be feeling the crushing weight of its severity, God comes to us in the midst of that, and he walks us through it, and he's a God of comfort, and he helps us, and he alleviates the pain, and he comforts and heals our hearts. If we're suffering a hardship or a heartache, maybe in your life, due to making a decision to honor the Lord, And maybe you've made a decision to honor the Lord and as a result of trying to honor the Lord in some way, some pain or heartache or loss has come into your life because you chose to honor the Lord and now you're suffering pushback because of that or you're suffering some loss. And I tell you, folks, there are times when you are going to have to choose between honoring the Lord and suffering some type of loss in this life. Maybe in a relationship, could be in a job, could be in a, a situation where you have to choose to lose finances or choose to lose you know, re, you know, uh, reputation with someone. There are different ways where at times, if you're going to choose to honor the Lord, there are times when that means that you can't do both. And you may have to say, I believe I'm supposed to honor the Lord here and I will suffer whatever loss or trial or pain that brings into my life because it's worth it and God will comfort me through it and God will help me through that. 
And there are times, as I said, when we endure trials because of a poor choice or sinful behavior. And perhaps you are experiencing some pain or hard time in your life as a direct consequence of a, a poor or sinful choice. Well, look, the wonderful thing is this. Even in those times, if we humble ourselves and we confess our sin and we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I blew it and I know what I did was wrong and now I'm suffering this and this consequence has come into my life. The wonderful thing is he's a God of mercies and a father of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulations. And God, even in the midst of our failures, can restrain the hardship of the consequences. And he can actually bring restraint to the severity of the consequences. I'm not telling you he's going to remove the consequences. Don't get this wrong idea. You can sow seeds to the flesh and then pray for crop failure. It doesn't work because the consequences are the greatest teachers to keep you from repeating the bad decision again. Consequences are great instructors. But I'll tell you this, there have been many times where I've seen God mingle his mercy where the consequence could have been way worse. And God mingles his mercy into there and he holds back some of the severity of how bad it could have been even when we make poor decisions. And he comforts us and loves us. And in the midst of our failure, he's the first one there as our cheerleader and comforting us and saying, I forgive you. And we're going to get beyond this and giving us that assurance of restoration on the days ahead. And God's often doing more than we think at the same time, because look what Paul says as he goes on. He says he comforts us in our tribulation. Notice key word, verse four, that so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God's comforting us in our hard times, supernaturally soothing our pain. But notice he's also secondarily, verse 4, through that process, also preparing and equipping us as instruments to be able to be better comforters to other people. So the Bible says one of the purposes sometimes for painful experiences we go through or hard times that we go through is to better equip us to be instruments of God to comfort other hurting people around us. And look, folks, we live in a life, do we not? We live in a life that's full of loss. From the moment we're born, we grow a little bit, and then it's, it's a life of loss. We, we lose loved ones. We lose jobs. We lose freedom. We lose hair. Some of us do, right? We, we, we lose. Part of life is loss, and it's suffering. And part of life is hardship and pain. And there are people enduring these things. So as we pass through these painful things and endure suffering, and then God through it comforts us and helps us. And he walks us through the valley of our shadow of death and he comforts us and guides us. We become, the Bible says, much better prepared to then comfort other people. We become much better equipped to help others in hardship and pain. Why? Because you know what happens, you become way more sensitive to hardship, right? The only people tend to not be very sensitive to people's hardship are people who've never gone through a hard time. But you find me people who've gone through hardship. They are some of the most sensitive, compassionate, tender people, and they're wonderful helping other people when they're going through a hard time. If you've lost a loved one, whatever degree, did that not make you way more sensitive to then when other people are losing a loved one because you, you've journeyed that road. And it makes you very sensitive to the pain and the difficulty of that when you go through that. It causes us to be more aware of what helps and what doesn't help 
when people are going through hard times because we're equipped. It helps us to understand how to better relate to people in their own journey and realize it's a process. And and it helps us to know how to do as he says here to be able, verse 4 he says, to then comfort others who are in trouble with that same comfort that we ourselves had been comforted by God. So we know how God comforted us and helped us and And we can then just take that, and as an instrument, we can then, under the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit, be God's instrument to help comfort other people and to be able to do it effectively. Lots of people are dealing in this world, would you agree, with all kinds of trouble. Life's hard. People are hurting. People are going through difficulties, and we can pass on to them the comfort we receive from God by being a channel and letting God use us in this way. And let me just say this this morning. Our world is full of, and I'm going to go so far as to say, though you're going to be offended by this, the church is also full of plenty of condemners and plenty of critics. But may God help us in the world and in the church. We need a whole lot more comforters. People who are willing to walk in love and realize, man, people are broken and hurting and and, and there never is going to be a lack of ministry if you want to comfort people. If you want to comfort people in their troubles and pass on God's comfort in gracious and merciful ways. And see, because God has not a temporal view, but the eternal perspective, that means that God views my pain and your suffering sometimes differently than we do. And that's hard for us, again, to, to, to keep in mind. Sometimes God in his great loving wisdom, caring so much about hurting people, may at times allow some of us to have gone through something painful or to have suffered in some way, or he may even be allowing someone to endure something so hard right now, and it may have absolutely nothing to do with us. It may actually have to do with God's bigger eternal picture, seeing, you know what, as the result of me allowing you to experience that through you, being equipped as a much better comforter of mine, I'm going to be able to help 10 other people who are hurting out there. I'm going to be able to minister to this person because I know it's going to happen to them next month and them three months from now. And them say, and I'm going to bring this person in your path and you are going to be so much better equipped to be a comforter, a minister of comfort of mine. And God sometimes in his bigger picture will see that reality. Paul says, verse five, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, he says, so also our consolation abounds through Christ. So Paul's telling us in verse 5 that in measured ways, God even allows us to experience some of the same sufferings that Jesus did. Do you see his language there? He calls our sufferings the sufferings of Christ, abounding in our lives. You know, the Bible tells us in Philippians 3 that we ought to come to know the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. The word fellowship means partnership or sharing together in the sufferings of Jesus. And one of the things the life of Jesus was characterized by was suffering to a degree. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, he's despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted, familiar with grief. Jesus himself declared the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected and be killed. You know, you study Jesus's life in the gospels and you see there's clear indication he had problems. He went through painful things as a man. He experienced hard things. Jesus was misunderstood by people. He was misunderstood by his own family. 
Jesus was rejected and bitterly betrayed by a very close companion in his life. Jesus was often falsely accused. Jesus was verbally slandered. Jesus lived a very simple sacrificial life that gave up a lot of the ease and comforts that other people around him were enjoying and chose to suffer a more simple and difficult life. Jesus dealt with emotional grief as a constant companion because he loved people so much it was always breaking his heart to see what was happening to the people that he loved. And Jesus as well even experienced physical abuse, painful physical abuse. He was the innocent victim of wrongful physical abuse even in his life. And Paul says here, these same sufferings of Christ, they abound in our lives. What's Paul conveying there? That what Jesus endured his sufferings to varying degrees, sometimes God will allow us to experience some of the exact same sufferings of Christ in our own lives as we walk in relationship with him. And God has a divine purpose. He says, however, in the midst of that, we also experience the consolation or comfort that comes, he says, verse five, through Christ. In other words, just as I experienced some of the same hardships that Jesus experienced as a man, as I walk with Jesus, Jesus who experienced those things is also the one who's comforting and consoling and helping me through that whole process. And what happens through that, as Jesus is helping me go through my hardships and helping you walk through your pain, consoling you, you come into a much deeper experience with Jesus because you say, Lord, that's what it feels like. Yeah, that's what it feels like. And I understand that. And I experience it as a man and I can help you walk through that. And we experience this greater depth of fellowship with Jesus. And I know it's hard to imagine, but in some ways you say fairly that in some ways there are certain things to be experienced in relationship with Christ that you could not experience unless you go through the hard things. And it's through those hard things that we experience deeper you know, encounters with the Lord. And the question I guess to ask is, are we willing to endure some hard times to experience a closer walk with Jesus? The value of that, that's what's eternal. It's not temporal. Paul concludes verse six and seven saying, now if we're afflicted, again, hurt, it's for your consolation and for your salvation which is effective for the enduring of the same sufferings which we also have suffered. Or if we're comforted, he says, it is notice for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers, participants of these sufferings, so you also will be partakers or participants of the same comfort. Paul seems to be conveying there how sometimes we endure degrees of suffering and hardship even in order to help bring benefit to other people's lives. Paul says, if we're afflicted, that is, if we suffer hurt and pain, or he says, verse six, if we're comforted, if we have to seek God to be comforted in the midst of our hard times, he says two times in verse six, notice he says, this is for your consolation and for your salvation. Two times Paul's emphasizing there, it brings emotional help to you even more if it can bring spiritual help to you than if what we experience brings something of benefit into your life, then Paul says from a bigger picture, that's well worth it. And I want you to think of this from this perspective. Jesus' suffering brought what? Tremendous benefit to our souls. What he suffered brought your salvation. 
what Jesus suffered by his stripes, we are healed. So what Jesus suffered brought help to us. And in the same way, our suffering as followers of Christ, representing him now, he's working through us. Our sufferings can actually help us to do things to benefit others. I mean, just consider that practically. What if somehow what you suffer protects another from suffering the same thing? What if perhaps what we suffer brings us into connection with a particular person that God wants us to connect to? Or what if because of what we experience in some hard time of life results in another not only being comforted, but what did Paul also say? Your salvation. What if a hard thing I go through or you go through actually connects us with a person that results in the salvation of their soul and their eternal destiny being changed? Then is it fair to say maybe it was from a heavenly perspective worth it? Maybe somehow God got great benefit out of that, bringing salvation or help to another person. That's why Paul says, this is what makes us hopeful. It's our hope for you, he says, verse 7, of what God can do for you because of what he has done through us and the fact that we are connected to one another. And he says, so what we experience because of our connection to you brings benefit into your life. One translation says, we are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in the comfort that God gives to us. See, the reality is, as I said earlier, all people on this earth are enduring suffering and pain and loss and hardship in their life's journey. And just like God connected Paul to the Corinthians, at the same way, God has connected you to certain people in your life's journey on this earth for a ministry. And just like Paul was connected to the Corinthians for that ministry, God has connected you to certain people in your life's journey because part of his plan is that as you suffer and then as they suffer, what you experience from God will become a contact point to equip you to better help and guide and comfort them on God's behalf. And God will use that as a channel and even capitalize on divine opportunities where hearts are open to God and hardship and maybe even use you to invite people into a relationship with this God of all comfort or maybe even invite them to realize there's something beyond struggling in this life. And the greatest comfort is the forgiveness of your sins and the assurance of your eternal comfort to know that heaven is after this life. Look, what really matters most in this life? Is it being comfortable? Is it being problem-free and avoiding hard times? Or is it being able to help other people? On God's behalf, to show his love, to help souls, and maybe even lead souls into salvation. You know, may God give us by his grace the bigger 